Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Brian Harley on the show. Brian is the executive director of CMAC TV, a nonprofit organization created to help citizens, schools, nonprofits, public agencies, and others better connect with our Fresno Clovis community through the use of media. Brian also has a lot of experience beyond the camera and an IMDB worth perusing. We talk about film, media literacy, pizza in Fresno, and more. Before we get to the interview, one quick note. I have started a new podcast called the History of Fresno Podcast, my personal exploration through the history of the region. This podcast will be a narrative-based telling of the story of our region, starting with the prehistory yokuts all the way to the election of Jerry Dyer. I hope you will give that podcast a try as well. The first episode has already been posted. Back to the show. Let's go meet Brian Harley. To infiltrate the pod waves on infinite quests, investigating, making convos to elevate guests. Politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Brian, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, boy. Um... I, I like a lot of different places. Um, lately, I have been going out to uh, Fresno Street Eats. So uh, the food truck uh, gatherings, uh, different places around town. I enjoy that. Uh, what are your favorite food trucks? There's, uh, well, recently I had the Brickology pizza. Uh, and, and that's pretty good. Uh, actually, you know, I, I would say pizza is probably my favorite food and and i've actually been kind of on a mission to uh try to eat at as many local fresno pizza places as i can um and you know sometimes (laughs) fresno gets kind of a bad rap for uh when it comes to pizza um and certainly i don't think we uh, are a mecca for pizza in 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 like uh, new york or chicago but we've got some okay pizza places is the Brickology food truck, do they have some kind of brick oven in there? Is, is it, or is I, it just a name? I think it's just a name. Okay, that's a little misleading. I'm, I'm, that's I'm, a little misleading. I'm not calling them out specifically, but if you're going to tell me there's bricks, like I'm going to expect a brick taste. I'm going to expect that, you know, f- that 900 degree oven. There are a ton of local pizza places out there that a lot of people might not have heard of, though. So I, I would encourage people to be pizza adventurous and get out there and... and and try some places. Absolutely. And, you know, we can talk about tacos all day, but I think pizza, pizza is something that uh, could use more people eating it. And maybe there's one or two places where people eat exclusively, and we'll we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, But uh, there's plenty of options. So let's talk about CMAC. Um, I know some people have heard of it. I know I had heard of it. Um, but when you see an acronym that doesn't necessarily uh, elucidate something's meaning, um, you, ju- you just see the acronym. So what is CMAC, um, and how did you find your way to being the executive director? Yeah, so CMAC uh, stands for Community Media Access Collaborative, and it's, it's kind of a mouthful, so that's why we call it CMAC. <laughs> Right. But CMAC is, uh, it, we're a membership-based uh, nonprofit organization, and, and our mission is to empower people in our community with the skills 
and the resources to communicate effectively using media. And so, you know, we kind of do the, that in four different ways. You know, one is we have a community media center in downtown Fresno. So this is a place where uh, the community can come uh, and uh, we have a television studio, a podcast studio, we have uh, editing suites, we have classrooms and office spaces and meeting rooms. And it's, it's really a creative hub for people to come and, and learn how to create media and have access to the tools and resources to do that. Um, and uh, sort of the second thing we do is education. So, you know, we have uh, workshops uh, on various topics from, you know, how do you come up with an idea for a media project to then how do you execute that using different tools and, and video cameras and microphones and, and lighting and, and these different things. Uh, you know, and our educational programs are, you know, we have, we have youth focused programs, we have adult educational programs, uh, you know, we work with seniors, uh, we have summer camps. So it, it, across the board, we have a lot of different sort of educational uh, programs. Um, third, I would say is our production services. So uh, while sort of our main mission is to work with the public and educate the public on how to create media, sometimes, you know, we'll partner with nonprofits who maybe don't have the, the capacity on staff or with volunteers to be able to learn how to do something and they just want to work with us to create a video project. So, you know, we'll, uh, we work with local governments, uh, we work with school districts and other nonprofits to provide low cost uh, media production services. And, and then fourth is, is our, our channels. It's sort of our distribution platform. So we, we manage uh, three, uh, cable TV channels that can be seen on Comcast and AT&T UVerse uh, within sort of the six county area, uh, a public channel for public programming, educational channel, and a government channel. Um, and while these channels are on cable, <laughs> they're also uh, streamed uh, every day of the year, 24 seven, uh, on our website, and we have a Roku app and Apple TV app because you know we realize not everybody's watching cable TV these days. We want to be where people are and, and evolve as our media landscape evolves. So, you know, we're doing streaming. We everything's on video on demand on our website. You can uh, pull up a, a local show and watch it, and and that's really what differentiates CMAC from other local TV stations. Is when you turn on CMAC, you're going to see 99.9% .9 of the time is a locally produced show by uh, someone who might be your neighbor. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think the underlying philosophy here, I mean, kind of the first part of that stuff is that, um, that there's talent everywhere, right? And people just lack the resources and be able to execute. I mean, I think about one of my favorite stories um, about this exact subject is the story of uh, Chance the Rapper, who's a very famous uh, musician nowadays. Um, and he recorded his first album at the public library in Chicago while being suspended from school. He booked a session at the public, well, a series of sessions, and produced a full album that you know has now made him like a Grammy-winning artist. And, you know, without that resources of having access to a publicly accessible uh, recording studio, 
I mean, I, it, it's not clear whether we would know who he is. And so I think part of the thing is, is that, you know, it's an equity issue at the core of it. And, you know, I mean, our public school systems do a lot of great things, but, you know, we have limits. We have limits. I mean, I, I have a little, you know, I, I will say the Valley has a lot of great film contests, Slick Rock and Visalia. Uh, so there's a lot of great things, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that maybe aren't at the school that has the film program and they have an idea and they need resources in order to accomplish it. And so I see you guys as filling that gap. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you talk to professionals in media and you'd be surprised how many of them said they got their start just at, you know, their local public access TV station. And, and you know, and that's really another word for, you know, what we do is uh, that people of a certain generation will know us as public access TV. Uh, nowadays, you know, we call it community media, but um, it's all the same thing. It, it's, it's making sure that, um, people, that there's a diversity of voices in our local media landscape, and that the people who don't have, uh, who don't feel like they're, they have a voice or that their voice is important can come here and learn and, and sort of be empowered and have those skills to uh, say whatever it is they want to say, you know, have, have access to creative expression. Absolutely. And what was your journey to being, uh, becoming the executive director? Yeah, so I, I started out as at CMAC as a volunteer um, uh, when I was a student at Fresno State. Uh, so this would have been probably 2006, 2007. Um, my professor and, and sort of mentor, Don Priest, uh, who's the chair of the journalism department at Fresno State at the time, uh, was on the board of CMAC. And this is when CMAC was very much a sort of a grassroots effort. We didn't have a building yet. Uh, our media center wasn't open. Things were just sort of getting started. And uh, I helped design the first website. And, you know, I, I, I went off after I graduated uh, from Fresno State, um, moved down to LA and, you know, said, hey, I'm gonna, I wanna go see what it's like to work in film and TV uh, down in LA. Um, but I always sort of kept in touch with Don and what was happening at CMAC. And, you know, a few years later, I found myself back in town and there was an opportunity uh, to, to work with CMAC on a part-time basis. Uh, did that for many years, worked full-time. And uh, our, our founding executive director, Jerry Lee, uh, retired in 2018. And I uh, stepped into the role as executive director. I mean, so you're working in film and this is now kind of a management position in some ways, right? So what, yeah. was the, what was the transition like that from being, you know, a technical person to being a kind of a manager? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, I uh, don't get to flex my uh, production muscles as much as I used to, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to uh, have those kinds of creative endeavors uh, uh, every once in a while. So, so I still do produce things, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's obviously a transition uh, sort of being uh, um, more on the ground doing the work to being more of an administrator. But, you know, now I get to make sure that, um, that we have the resources we need as an organization to, to do the things, you know, that we feel are important for sort of building our community and, and 
strengthening our mission and what we're what we're doing in the community to make it a better place. Yeah, I think we all have to make that kind of decision in our careers. I mean, I someone that I watched publicly make this kind of transition was I, um, you know, kind of in the early Obama years, I was, I watched this blog pretty closely. Uh, it was written by this guy named Ezra Klein. Um, and it was about like healthcare politics and whatever else. And that was when blogs were really cool. I don't know if you remember that when we used oh, to just read blogs all the time. It was great. I, was, I had a blog. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we all did. Right. And I, I remember my, one of my favorites was uh, the daily dish. I would read that every day. I'd read Ezra every day. Matty Glacius, all those kind of uh, blog bros. Um, anyway, so Ezra Klein was a journalist and he made the transition to starting this big company called Vox, um, which was, you know, this kind of big national magazine online mainly. Um, and um, I just let, you know, he went from being a journalist to an administrator and he talked about kind of similar what to what you're saying, uh, which is, you know, moving from my individual impact as a producer or creative to like, I'm managing a bunch of creatives now, right? And sure. seeing the impact of that. And I think about in my profession in education, we all make that decision where we're like, well, we're gonna uh, pursue being in administration, be a principal, vice principal, whatever, uh, or we're gonna focus on just our individual craft. And Ezra, funny enough, went back to his, you know, he left the management just because it, yeah. it wasn't the right fit for him. Um, but, you know, I think it's, for some people, they see it as a linear, like what you're supposed to do. But I think what's clear is that um, each of those choices, whether it's a management choice or whether it's kind of you being your individual creator, um, both of those have their virtues and are necessary. Um, and one is not better than the other. They're just different, different kinds of impact. And I think, I think we all have to make that choice. And it's, it's a, how did you think about that um, personally? Um, I guess I didn't think about it too much. Um, it was just sort of the uh, evolution of, of my role within the organization and, and sort of just timing, you know, the fact that my, uh, that our former ED was retiring and, and someone needed to step, step up to lead this organization. And I felt, well, why not me? I'll give this a shot. It's, it's uh, not, you know, something I necessarily, uh, um, had all the skills I needed at the time to do, but uh, it's something that I've grown into and, and that I enjoy doing. And like you said, it's, it's something different, but it's a challenge and, and why not do, you know, it's, it's uh, doing things that are challenging, keeps you on your toes, <laughs> keeps right. you learning. And, you know, I mean, we all don't have grand plans of our future. We kind of stumble in things. I stumbled into Fresno, for example. <laughs> we stumble into things, um, you know, because I've, you know, to get really personal and vulnerable, I listen to Obama to go to sleep. I've been listening to the promised land um, to go to sleep each night. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether it's just uh, kind of him creating a folksy story or not, but he kind of claims his path to presidency was kind of just you know, not some grand plan, but, you know, uh, Ted Kennedy just was like, yeah, it's a good idea, Barack, you should do it. Um, you know, and sometimes that is how things happen. I feel like that is how things happen more often than uh, anyone has a grand plan. And so I, I say this just to say that there's a lot of young people, and I know young people listen to this, you know, don't have a grand plan, I think is the ultimate thing that we would, you and I would message to people, which is you don't know what you have until you try it. And then when you try it, things become clear. And, you know, I, 
I, I stumbled into podcasting because I was looking for uh, a good California history podcast and there was nothing. And I was like, well, fine, I'll just make the damn thing and I'll produce it and put it out and it, I will get the same value, albeit with some work, um, of having a podcast to listen to. And that turned into this and this turned into whatever else. And it just, it, things happened that way, I think. Yeah, no, and I, I remember having this sort of notion as a kid that adults just had everything figured out, you know, and that I someday would reach an age in which something clicked and I just understood everything about the world and how it worked and how to be an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you come to realize that that's BS, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that sort of nobody has uh, things all figured out and, and we're all just, uh, you know, making our way through the world and doing, trying to do the best that we can, um, you know, and, and passion means a lot and doing things that you love and that matter to you mean a lot and uh if you're passionate about something and you work on it you can get there absolutely and i think you know just trying things that you wouldn't feel like are natural or are linear to what you're currently doing is helpful as well let's talk about uh, fresno the independent filmmaking scene um so i'm sure it's changed over the years how have you seen it grow and change uh, since the early days well um yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, for, for me, when Ray Arthur was uh, the film commissioner for the city of Fresno, I think he came in about 2007. And uh, I, I'm not sure that the city of Fresno had a film commissioner prior to that. What but, is a uh, film when, commissioner? What does that even yeah, mean? A film commissioner is uh, basically a liaison between uh, a filmmaker and you know city government or local businesses so they you know if a filmmaker wants to come into fresno and uh or, or a tv show or or whatever if they come into the area and they're wanting to do some sort of filming here uh, typically they'll get in touch with the film commissioner to learn about uh, permits that might be necessary or you know where to get local catering or where to find a certain uh-huh. location, you know, if they're looking for a certain type of building or landscape. So a film, film commissioner sort of connects the production community to those resources. And when you live um, in Southern California, you see that stuff much more than you do up here. I mean, I oh, remember sure. my, <laughs> this is kind of a random anecdote and we'll get back to the question. I, you know, I lived in Altadena for quite a few years and they would film stuff kind of in the hills up there or whatever. And I remember one day, um, you know, I was just sitting on my front porch, like having a beer or something. And this woman in like a pantsuit walks up into our dirty driveway in Altadena and asks if uh, she could talk to my roommates and I about using our house for for a show. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, And she was like, you know, we'll pay you like five grand to use your living room. And, and we're like, that's great. We'd love that. <laughs> and then she was like, here's, here's kind of the, the basics. Uh, we need a house where um, a meth dealer uh, gets murdered in the living room. I was a little offended, if I'm going to be completely honest, that she would A, think like, you haven't even seen the inside of her house. Maybe I mean, it's dirty outside, but we might, might be nice inside. How do you know? Anyway. They didn't end up doing it, but yeah, that stuff happens all the time. I mean, I remember being paid 500 bucks to have a generator parked in my driveway so that, 
you know, they could film a, something up the street anyway. Um, but I don't see that stuff as much in Fresno. No, it doesn't happen here as much. And, and, you know, and, and part of, part of the job of the film commissioner is to kind of go out and, and, uh, and, and recruit, you know, productions to come into the area and say, look, look at, you know, how close we are to these different sort of landscapes or vistas or old buildings or whatever, whatever it is, you know, the resources that our community can provide to a production uh, company. Um, and so, Ray, yeah, when, when Ray came in as the city of Fresno's film commissioner, he sort of uh, was trying to sort of unite uh, our local production resources together. So local crew, uh, crews, people who might be work on a set as a production assistant or, or you know, amateur or local filmmakers who are working on projects. He, he really saw uh, the need uh, to bring these people together and create some, some communication and camaraderie around that group. And so he, he sort of started with some other folks, uh, the Fresno Filmmakers Alliance. And, and it started just as a simple way of, of production people meeting up once a month to kind of talk. And, and there were some educational uh, programs that he sort of started. And, and that was something I was involved in in the early days. And in, in a lot of ways was kind of a precursor to what CMAC became. Um, and, and, and I think since then, um, you, you do see local filmmakers working together a lot more. And, and certainly there, there are some, some great success stories that have come out of that. Um, uh, for example, uh, Chris Loafing and, and Travis Clough the, the guys who directed um, The Gallows, which was a, a feature-length horror film that got purchased by Blumhouse Productions and, and distributed by Warner Brothers uh, a couple years ago. They did a sequel to that. And those guys are great. They're, they're from here, or Travis is from here originally. Chris lives here now. And, and they're really awesome about work, using local crews and shooting in Fresno and, and doing things here. In fact, I think they just announced uh, uh, they've got a movie coming out in about a month here on, uh, I think it's going to be in theaters and streaming platforms called uh, Held. So those guys are great. And and I think we're starting to see more and more production things uh, happening in town and, and people working together to make them more successful. What kind of boon would it be to the economy? I mean, because there's, you know, What's the what's the economic relationship between a film and it using a specific city? Like what what is incentivizing a city to have a film commissioner? Yeah, well, certainly uh, having professional uh, crews come in from out of town has a huge economic impact. For you know, for example, when uh, uh, Captain Marvel uh, they came and they shot at Shaver Lake. Uh, there's a whole section of the film that takes place uh, on a lake. And that was right here in in, at Shaver. Uh, When they come into town, I mean, you have to think about the number of people they bring with them. That's, you know, uh, hundreds of people uh, who have to uh, stay at hotels, who have to eat, uh, who are spending money. uh, And, and that all has a huge impact on the local economy. So I think the, the more, um, things that come in from out of town that are of a larger scale, I mean, certainly have an economic impact, but, 
but there's also an, an impact to you know local filmmakers and their work as well. Yeah. So um, we're going to transition to my favorite uh, part of the podcast, which is overrated versus underrated. Which basically, you I'm going to throw out some uh, topics and names, and you can tell me whether you think they're overrated or underrated and why. If you want to be non-political on any of these, you can just say properly rated, which is the kind of caveat <laughs> pass. Um, and so we'll start with a simple one. Uh, Citizen Kane, overrated versus or underrated? Um, I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I'll go underrated. I mean, I don't know. It, it, that's hard to say. Maybe appropriately rated. Because uh, you know, it, it certainly is a uh, 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 lauded as one of the greatest films of all time. And do you and like I it? Think it? Do you enjoy it yeah, when, when you I, watch it? I, I do like it. Yeah, and and I think it's a, a film that if you haven't seen it, you should see it because there's a lot of uh, uh, from a technical standpoint, a lot of techniques that were pioneered by Orson Welles uh, in that film, and and it's sort of amazing to think that. Uh, uh, what he did as a director and an actor at, at, you know, he was like something like 24, 25 years old at the time. Um, it's a great accomplishment for, for what he did. Um, so I, I think it's worth watching. I don't know that it's underrated. I think a lot of people know about it, but maybe haven't necessarily seen it, but I think you should see it if you haven't. Yeah. Cause I feel like, I mean, like many people, during the pandemic, I've watched my fair share of The Office uh, to pass some time. And there's this moment where Citizen Kane is mentioned and it's Michael Scott's uh, horrible nephew that comes to work at, uh, at the paper company. Um, and he says he's, uh, you know, he loves film, his favorite movies are Citizen Kane. And so I think people kind of associate it with like snobby film students, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. and I. Yeah, I I would be suspect if anybody said their all-time favorite movie is Citizen Kane because uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my just... one my one Orson Welles anecdote because I do have one. Um, I randomly took a vacation to Sedona with some family the other year, and uh, uh, Orson Welles lived there for a while. And the Airbnb that we got, we figured out because there was a plaque in the bathroom that it was Orson Welles's house in Sedona. And oh, wow. it's this like amazing little house on a river. Um, it wasn't anything really gaudy from the outside or whatever, but I was just, I had some moments where I was sitting on the back porch going, Orson was staring at this little creek right behind this house. And I just felt, <laughs> you know, I felt uh, uh, like I was transcending something. Um, all right, next one, uh, Roger Deakins, overrated or underrated? Oh, underrated for sure. He is uh, an amazing cinematographer who, you know, hadn't really been recognized within the industry, uh, or, 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 or certainly recognized and and uh, uh, and praised uh, among cinematographers. But um, you know, he won won his uh, an Oscar for the first time just a few years ago, uh, and had been nominated many times previous. So he, he's definitely a underrated person. If you don't know who he is, you should <laughs> watch every film he's ever made because. Uh, He's great. For those who don't know who he is, what are some of his more famous films that he produced or worked on? Well, just recently, uh, Blade Runner uh, 2034, is that? I can't 49, remember I think. the year. 49, yeah. yeah. 
so that that was just gorgeous and uh oh gosh what else has he done um he he's been uh, casino royale is another recent movie the james bond movie uh you know he he's he was a sort of an early ad- adopter of uh, digital cinema you know there's a lot of uh, cinematographers out there who are sort of film purists and don't ever want to shoot digitally but i think roger deakins proves that <laughs> you can make a really beautiful movie with a digital cinema camera that you know rivals what you can do on film all right well let's let's go back to pizza the next one is me and ed's overrated or underrated <laughs> uh i would say me and ed's is overrated okay explain uh, why. well i don't know and it, it's, it's maybe because i'm born and raised in fresno and so i've been eating me and ed's for a long time and honestly i feel like me and ed's ha, has changed I feel like it 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 tasted one way in the early days and it's different now. And I, I, I've heard other people say this too, so I, I know I'm not alone. And I don't know what the sort of demarcation point is where everything changed. <laughs> but you know, I think there was a time when me and Ed's was was kind of like a eighteen dollar, twenty dollar pizza. It was a little pricier. And I think when they lowered the prices, they maybe changed some of the ingredients or you know, change their whole uh, sort of uh, uh, distribution line in terms of the ingredients, but uh, something changed, and and it's just not the same. And there's there's pizza places out there that I think taste more like the original Me and Ed's than Me and Ed's mm-hmm. taste now. Interesting. It's kind of similar to I, Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast about. Uh, how if you had McDonald's fries in the eighties, you had something different when they changed the the oil that they used to fry them in. Um, it, and you know, about the whole generation of us that doesn't understand what fries used to be, which I think, you know, I mean, if I, I think, I don't know, I don't know what they were using exactly, but it's true. If you use different oil, you just get all, I mean, if you use duck fat, I'm just saying anything tastes good in duck fat. But yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's grown their business, but uh, made things a little uh, less exciting. Um, all yeah, right. I would say for those, for those who want to maybe taste what me and Ed's used to taste like, uh, try uh, Leela's Pizzeria on, on West and Clinton uh, or just down the street, West and Dakota, there's a 525 brick oven pizza. Those to me taste a little closer to what me and Ed's used to be and it's they sort of try to do the the cracker style crust and all of that um, okay yeah. those are on the list so next one going back to film the dolly zoom technique overrated or underrated uh unfortunately i think uh, generations of student filmmakers have made that move overrated <laughs> <laughs> and what is the dog uh, zoom for people that don't know? I mean, the yeah, famous Jaws scene, right? Jaws, exactly. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's when the camera is physically uh, moving forward and the lens is zooming out, or vice versa. The camera's moving out and, and the lens is zooming in. But it sort of creates this effect where it looks like the foreground and the background are being compressed and coming together. And it's kind of to draw emphasis, you know, on something or 
or like a, a denote like some sort of realization of the character. Uh, and, and that's what the scene is in Jaws when uh, he's uh, sitting on the beach and uh, uh, realizes, yeah, I the forget shark. what it is, the, the shark's coming, yeah. Yeah. Is there, what, what I'm, I was trying to think of other uh, famous examples of it, because the one that came to mind was obviously Jaws. I know there's other ones. It, it, it's a really simple, uh, I, you know, with, some of my students, when we mess around with DSLR cameras, I can kind, we can kind of simulate a, a similar thing with that, not quite at the same quality, but um, can you think of other ones? Yeah, uh, Goodfellas has a great example of it, and, it, and it's sort of done subtly, and so you, you might not even notice it's happening at first, but uh, it, it's a scene, I think it's with uh, Robert De Niro's characters in a diner, um, talking to somebody and, and the, it, it happens very, very slowly. Uh, 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 probably over like a minute or more as these two people are having a conversation. And then you just sort of, sort of uh, makes you feel uneasy because you suddenly realize the whole, the whole scene is compressing and you're starting to see the background, the parking lot and the cars kind of come almost right into the diner. Is, um, is Goodfellas your favorite Scorsese movie? Um, I don't know if it's my favorite. Um, maybe. I mean, I I like Raging Bull quite a bit, um, but uh, Goodfellas is, is is a good one for sure. Uh, I think other Dolly Zooms like uh, watch a Saving Private Ryan and watch and look for it. Uh, Spielberg uses it a couple different times in Saving Private Ryan. But um, once you kind of know what it is and know what to look for, you might see it pop up in, in movies from time to time. Well, and it's like any other technique that becomes fashionable. You know, you gets yeah. overused and then people forget about it and it'll get used again. You're like, oh, remember that thing that we, we saw that one time? All right. Uh, next one. Uh, one of my one of the most controversial movies um, I really enjoy, but is uh notoriously uh, difficult for first watchers uh Mulholland Drive um I don't know I guess I would say underrated maybe not a lot of people have seen it um I know certainly it didn't resonate with me the first time uh, I, I saw it I don't think I liked it the first time I saw it but sort of upon uh, repeated viewings, you know, it, it, <laughs> you see it from a different perspective. Uh, yeah. So, you know, maybe underrated. And is it because it's confusing the first time you watch it, you're just like, what the Absolutely. hell is happening? And that's, yeah. you know, and I, I still wonder about, you know, I, and this is maybe the wrong way to approach Lynch stuff. I still wonder if the point is that is to acquire some kind of meaning from it, or is it just to just to kind of jar you and leave you disoriented, you know, kind of in the same similar way you'd look at a piece of art, you know, you don't say this means this, you just say, that's, right. uh, that's Jackson Pollock right there. Maybe the point is that you don't understand it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's quite possible. I, you know, it's one of those movies where like I want to rewatch it, but then when I start rewatching, I'm like, why did I do this? <laughs> you know, like why, my Friday night is now this. Um, all right. So you actually mentioned this the next one a second ago, but we'll come back to this. Um, uh, shooting a movie with film in the digital age. Is that overrated or underrated? Uh, 
Well, I mean, it, it's that's a tough one. I, I guess it's overrated because uh, it just doesn't make economic sense anymore. I mean, there's very few filmmakers. I mean, you have to be a filmmaker at the top of your game, um, like uh, Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino or Steven Spielberg, to ins or, or Martin Scorsese, to uh, insist that your next project has to be shot on film because just economically it does not make sense anymore. Um, Why? What, what's the downside to using film these days? Well, there's uh, not a lot of companies that make the film anymore or process the film, you know, and it's a complicated process and, and uh, it, it's very expensive. Um, you know, you uh, unlike shooting digitally, where you could do eighty different takes, which David Fincher is is uh, uh, often does, uh, to do that on film would be far more expensive because you're consuming all these physical reels of film uh, that have a much higher cost than recording data to a, a disc. How so annoying! E economically, a, it just doesn't make sense. How annoying to a set crew to shoot a, a shot eighty times is it really? Is it just annoying to the actors or is it the whole crew feels it? <laughs> I imagine if it, if it got up to 80 or hundred takes, which uh, apparently Fincher is off to do, uh, that would be pretty annoying for the crew. I don't know. I guess you'd just take a extended break depending on what's going on. I mean, check for, out. for people listening, it's kind of just like, you know, it's like a, a 30 second shot being done over <laughs> and over and over and over. And I don't even really understand. I mean, I, I kind of get what the point is, but like, is the point to exhaust the actors to the point where they have some natural reaction? Uh, I guess we'd have to ask David Fincher. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that, that could be it. Um, but I, I would think when you get up to those kind of numbers of doing a, something 80 times, uh, it, there might not be a point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause then it would be hard to really go back in and post and like figure out, Oh, uh, you oh, know, gosh, watching 80, like how can you have a sense of like, yeah. what is the best or, or, or anyway. All right. Last one, editor. last one. And this is, uh, he's one of my, I, I don't actually want to say that because now I'm kind of leading the question. Uh, the films of Terrence Malick, are they overrated or underrated? Oh, that's a good one. Um, and I, oh, I have to preface it with, I have not seen all of them, uh, <laughs> because I sort of don't have a desire to. What about like Tree uh, of Life? Because that's my, my favorite and yeah. you know, one of the so most. So I haven't people. seen Tree of Life. Oh, okay. I haven't seen Tree of Life. Um, so I don't know. Uh, that one's a hard, hard to say. I mean, I guess I haven't seen them cause I feel like maybe it, it's kind of overrated, but, um, you know, like I've seen the thin red line. And that's that's certainly a, a great uh, sort of war film, uh, not your typical war film. But um, I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen a ton of Malik's other work to be able to pass judgment. Yeah, I brought him up just simply because, you know, a lot of the films are light on dialogue. And so a lot of what you're get, getting is the, the, the visuals. And yeah. um, I remember, you know, there's that one, there's the one he did about Pocahontas with, um, I forget who the. Uh, was it the new world? Something like yeah. That. The new world where, and, and, and so they're, they, they're really just dependent on the cinematography. Right. I mean, you know, the, the acting's great, of course, but um, 
you know, those movies I mean, this, and this gets into this whole subject of like art house film versus popular film. And do you need to pretend that you enjoyed a movie, even though it was a slog? And there's, there's a a lot of us, you know, that want to sound sophisticated at dinner parties will want to say, well, you know, Terrence, you know, I mean, it, it was, I know it was four and a half hours and there was three words of dialogue, but it was great. You know, just, it was just so great. And I, I, you know, it's, it's such a hard thing, this kind of like division between these innovators that are doing things that you admired that they're doing them. And then the reality of like, I'm actually enjoying what I'm doing with my time. You know, it's yeah, a hard I think, balance. <laughs> I think you could certainly dislike the movie and uh, still appreciate it for what it is. I mean, I sort of feel that way about like 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, it, it was when I finally, it, it was obviously a movie I heard a lot about and I didn't see it until later in life for whatever reason. And I just remember thinking like, this is so long and boring and I, it's not, uh, I don't enjoy it at all. <laughs> but I, I recognize the, the and... historical achievements, uh, you know, and, and what it means. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, for that. you know, there's, it's like a lot of things, you know, um, where you look back and you don't, you know, in the historical development of film, there are films that are important for the history, but not necessarily, uh, for being a good film. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, and, and I, I think about some of, you know, for people in the sixties that were thinking about, you know, a, a person going to the moon to watch, 2001 a space audience because i had a similar reaction to you watching i was like what is this like i i can always measure how boring a film is by how many times i open my phone you know while it's going and but what's interesting about 2001 space Odyssey is that it was really popular people kept going back to the theater to see it and i just kind of sat there and was like well what what, what, what are they, what about this movie interests them? And maybe it's just the, the idea, it was the moment, the historical moment of space opening up. Yeah, it, uh, it was that spectacle. Yeah. Because there's certainly, and, and those are some of the amazing technical achievements in that film is, is uh, things like the simulating weightlessness and this idea of being on a spaceship. And, and uh, it, it, it's amazing to sort of learn the techniques behind how they did some of these things. Um, and so I can totally understand why it was kind of a, a spectacle at the time, yeah. uh, but also why modern audiences might kind of roll their eyes at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've seen too many good space movies now. So if you'd like pair up 2001, a space Odyssey versus the Martian, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, we, we get better at what we do. That's really what it is at the core. And I, I think it's true with like, you know, older novels for people that want to go back and read war and peace, you know, I mean, you have to think about a time before like all the technology and movies and all the entertainment we have um, and think about, you know, Charles Dickens publishing his serialized novels and newspapers. I mean, it's, it was people's form of entertainment and, and it's hard to go back and recreate that. I mean, you can still get a lot out of it, And I do encourage people to watch uh, boring A films um, because, you know, you do learn something about history watching them as well. I mean, you learn a lot watching some of those really famous uh, 
Japanese films that are kind of on those AFI lists or whatever. Kurosawa, yeah. Yeah, but you know, it's it's not going to be The Martian with Matt Damon. You're not getting Matt no. Damon in that. Um, but you're watching <laughs> and, it for a different. Oh gosh, it, it might be in black and white. <laughs> yes, exactly. I hear that from students all the time. Oh, I can't watch it in black and white, or I can't watch it with subtitles. You know, that has subtitles. I can't do. Well, and there, there are some that last, like North by Northwest or whatever. There's some that, like, you can watch and they have a, you know, decent plot and you, they drive you along. Um, let's, uh, two more questions. Um, let's talk about media literacy. Um, now, media literacy is an interesting thing. Um, I've talked about it a few times with a few previous guests. Um, and... <laughs> It's, it's almost like a word that does, it has meaning, but it, the meaning changes so fast, it's hard to even like account for what it means to be literate, you know, because we're getting these new forms of media like TikTok and social media and different kinds of television. And it's, so media literacy in my mind has to be something that's constantly evolving uh, to adapt to what yeah. the medium is at that moment. Uh, but how do you define it um, and why is it important? Yeah, well, um, you know, we hopefully we all understand what literacy is, you know, in, in, in its basic form, understanding how to read and write. So you know, in terms of media literacy, it's really uh, being able to identify and understand all the different types of media and the fact that media, uh, every, uh, media messages uh, media has a message that it is it is sending you know someone has uh created that piece of media and uh, someone is trying to communicate something to you so um uh, as a reader or as a viewer uh, you need to sort of be able to think critically about the media that you're consuming and and view that objectively um to sort of analyze and find out that what what is being presented to you and, and through that um sort of not only becoming a better consumer of media but but also being able to produce media yourself yeah it's a little bit like um in harry potter to get really sophisticated here <laughs> you have to learn the you have to they take defense against the dark arts you must learn how to defend yourself um because if you don't, if you don't know the, ba you know, if you don't know those three unforgivable curses, they could be used against you, right? And that's part of the challenge <laughs> is, is that people don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the challenge. Oh, right? it's true. And because it's hard. You know, we, we are bombarded every day um, by uh, so many different kinds of media messages everywhere we look. And, and it is hard to think critically about that and to say, you know, is what I'm reading true and credible? And, you know, do I need to go find out where this came from and find two cooperating sources? You know, most people are not going to do that. They're, they're just going to sort of see something that resonates with them and, and click retweet, you know? <laughs> right. Well, so I, it, it is, it is difficult. Yeah. And it's hard to know at that point, what, what the right, I mean, cause you can, I mean, one approach is obviously to equip people with the tools, the other approach, which, you know, a lot of people take is to, is to just try to make better forms of media. And I think that's, you know, both of those are necessary, but 
there is kind of, I, I feel a little fatalistic and perhaps it's that I teach middle school and I watch how they consume media that I, I just feel a little fatalistic about them and their phones and what they see. And the fact that a lot of it is a private viewing experience. Like, you know, if I'm sitting around a, a couch and we're watching the daily show, like I was want to do in college, um, you know, some of the things that would pop up there, I could say, I don't know about that or whatever, or, and there'd be a group of us kind of watching it. But now that it's this private viewing for all of us, you know, in some ways, you know, we're just kind of the echo chamber of our own brains. And we know that critical thinking only happens. Mm -hmm. And this is a point that I make only happens when you have other people to counteract your point of view, right? Because our biases are so embedded in us that, if we're just on our own, we're just living, you know, we're going to live in delusions. We are. And it's, it's, it's hard, you know, given that all of it is contained in this thing, it's hard to know how to be yeah. critical thinkers. Well, and, and when you're really at the mercy of these uh, news feed algorithms, you know, wh whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, Snapchat or TikTok, you know, th these uh, things are designed by uh, companies to make money. And so their their goal isn't for the public good. Their goal is to keep you watching, and and so it and then that creates the echo chambers that you're talking about, where you're just constantly fed um, what you sort of know you like, and is going to keep you watching, and you're not presented with uh, a diversity of topics or or opinions. So I'm going to use one of my favorite vocab words right now, prognosticate. Um, can you do a little prognostication for us and uh, kind of given your experience in media and where you're at, what do you, what do you see for the future? Is it just going to, are we going to spiral deeper down into this social media black hole or do you see us coming out of it? Uh, gosh, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I tend to be, uh, I tend to be an optimist, you know, so I, I, I don't think this is the end of society or humanity as we know it, but, you know, uh, I, I think it's important to realize uh, when there's problems and um, try to come up with solutions to, to address them. And I don't, I don't know what the solution is to that problem, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, um, you know, that we'll, we'll find a way to get, get through it. And, you know, ultimately, you know, the work that we do at CMAC is, you know, we're, we're wanting to turn people into sort of passer, passive consumers into active, engaged creators. And, and I think when that happens, it, um, it's not just that you learn a new technology or a skill, but there's kind of this sense of, uh, personal agency or, or empowerment or, or transformation that happens to a person when they uh, learn that they can do something. Um, and, you know, like a, an individual, especially individuals who historically have, have not felt that their story or voice was important or, or that they had power. So, you know, teaching someone how to be more media literate, how to use a camera uh, to talk about whatever they want to talk about. What, you know, maybe they like 
really are into martial arts and they want to talk about that. Or maybe they want to talk about how their, their healthcare could be better or their housing should be cheaper, you know, whatever you want. But that, that sort of changes their position of power. And, and just by learning that, right, if, if I can do this, if I could pick up a camera and, and, and create a video, what else can I do? Um, and so that, that's, that's a, a really powerful thing. And, and that's what we sort of see as, as uh, equity um, and, and, uh, and, and making those changes. I'm hopeful like you. I, I tend to look at humanity as like almost like an entity, like a biological unit. And I think that we humanity figures out when something is toxic to itself. And, you know, if you just look at like how food politics have changed in the last 50 years, um, not really thinking about what's going on in our body. And now we use uh, words like macros you know? <laughs> um, and thinking about where our food is made and produced and how. Um, it, but the the flip is also true. As humanity grows in certain areas, you do get this kind of inequality that emerges where you might have half of society that sees that social media is toxic for their brains. And so you have this half of society that's going analog. And then you have kind of the, you know, the other half, which, you know, is underemployed, uh, lower income that, you know, kind of in some ways plugs into the matrix to escape the harshness of their realities. And so that's a little dystopian, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I say that to, you know, that's kind of my prediction is I think we're going to have to have a lot of, there's going to be a lot of inequality around this area before uh, the uh, changes maybe um, become more uh, universal. Let's finish with books, which uh, talking about good media sources, books, I mean, come on. <laughs> Um, so what are three books that uh, have been influential in your life? Um, I, I guess when I think about influential books, I, I think about my grandfather, uh, my grandfather, on my, my father's side who passed away before I was born. Um, and just hearing stories about this guy, <laughs> fought in World War II and he was just this, uh, sounded like this really amazing person. And, and something my dad shared with me about him was he, uh, uh, or sort of his annual tradition was to read the Lord of the Rings and sort of to hear that as, as a 11 year old, 12 year old. Um, I, I picked up the Lord of the Rings for the first time and, and, and that was really influential and, and transformational for me. Um, was, was reading that book. And I've sort of tried to carry on that tradition of, of, of picking it up once a year. Um, but, you know, and, and, and that sort of you know, helped nurture at an early age, my uh, interest in storytelling and kind of mythology. And, you know, I've really enjoyed um, books like the hero with a thousand faces by Joseph Campbell that kind of talks about the breaking down the hero's journey. Um, and sort of the mono myth and, and, and sort of the commonalities of mythic storytelling uh, uh, throughout history. Um, and so, yeah, that was very influential for me. Uh, it got me into sort of studying Greek history too and mythology. Uh, my minor, for instance, was in history, a big history buff. Um, so I 
know, uh, enjoyed diving into things like uh, Herodotus and, and the early Greek stories, like the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, which, which was turned into a horrible movie <laughs> by Zack Schneider, <laughs> 300. Uh, I, I hope someday to see a, a better movie about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, yeah, those those yeah, are know, those, those those sort of things come to mind, at least in my sort of early years of uh, of uh, books. Yeah, those uh, there's so many great films that could be made with a lot of our classical literature, and I I think that would be interesting to kind of you know in some ways how Shakespeare's plays are kind of repackaged in different ways. Um, I'm rereading, uh, because a new, uh, interesting translation came out, I'm rereading the Aeneid, um, because, you know, it's COVID, I have time. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not a story people know. Uh, people know the Odyssey, they know the, so, some parts of the Iliad, thanks to Brad Pitt and his muscles. Um, but people don't know. Talk, talk about a, a movie that could be better. Yeah. Yeah. And I, why, why do you think that there hasn't been good is it the books are too big, too challenging, too complicated? Um, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I would certainly love to see someone tackle it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, I don't know. The, it's going to be challenging these days with, with Hollywood because everything's a franchise and you, you, all you want to, all they think people want to see are the big monsters, you know, fighting in these big epic battles. Um, and so it's kind of hard to get past that just sort of surface level <laughs> understanding of, uh, of history. Um, but, you know, I, I would love to see a proper um, uh, historical Greek epic uh, on screen. That would be awesome. That That's not starring Brad Pitt. Yeah. I, what I, I listened to the, the uh, ringer podcast rewatchable sometimes um, has pretty good little shows where they rewatch old, old movies that they wanted to watch again. And one of their categories that they have in kind of rating the movies is could this sh movie been made into a 10 episode Netflix series? And I think yeah. that maybe is the solution for a lot of these, you know, for Herodotus or the Aeneid or the Iliad, you know, not a lot, you know, I mean, when you need almost a Game of Thrones style length to get through some of these in a way that really uh, gives them justice. So maybe that's, that's a good point. And, and I think that's a great uh, thing that streaming services are doing right now is, is uh, allowing creators that sort of longer form uh, of storytelling uh, to be able to tackle things that, you know, might not work as a two or three hour movie that over a 10, 10 hour mini series, you could really sink your teeth into it. Last question. Um, do you think we're going to be back in movie theaters anytime soon? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I personally will be back in the movie theater, but um, yeah, no, I, I think this summer we will probably see theaters opening up maybe even sooner. Um, but um, yeah, it's going to kind of come down to w whether audiences will return or not. I'm, I'm not whether sure. they'll pay the money, right? For, you know, because I watch the money. I watch Judas and the Black Messiah on my couch, and while that wasn't a theater, you know, I, I don't know. It's one of those tough things with the. I'm I'm film. someone who loves going to the movie theater, so um, you know, I'm I'm a big advocate for movie theaters 
remaining a thing <laughs> in society. Uh, but on the same, at, on the other side of the coin, I, I certainly enjoy to be able to sit on my couch and watch a movie too, and not have someone talk talking behind me or, uh, you know, being on their cell phone. You know, there's some things that are a little annoying about movie theaters as well. Absolutely. Uh, to close, where can people find out about CMAC and what can they do if they want to contribute, volunteer, stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so our website is uh, CMAC, C-M-A-C dot TV. And uh, yeah, I would encourage people to get involved if you have an interest uh, in uh, media creation, uh, you know, at the very sort of entry level, uh, if, if you already make something and uh, we can help you distribute it and, and to a really specific audience, Fresno, <laughs> with, with our cable channels and uh, our, our website and our uh, uh, TV apps. So you can, you know, it doesn't cost anything if you have something you've made, whether it's a podcast or a vlog or a little show, something you're putting on YouTube, you can send it to us and we'll help get that out to uh, help share that with, with a wider audience. Um, sort of, a, I would say the next level down to getting involved would be if you uh, want to learn how to make something. Uh, we offer a whole suite of classes. Um, not just in terms of technology, but also uh, literacy and, and learning how to uh, tell stories through media. And, and then how do I use a camera? How do I use microphones and lights? Um, and then sort of the next level deeper to that is, is some of our longer form like educational work. So for example, right now we're working with uh, a cohort of 12 young people who are under the age of 18. It's a 14 week sort of documentary filmmaking intensive where they're gonna be making their own short documentary films. And, and we, that's called our Youth Voices program. Um, and we'll be premiering them, probably not in a movie theater, unfortunately, probably through a virtual screening sometime in April or May. But uh, we have lots of different ways that you can get involved uh, with CMAX. So, you know, go to our website, check it out. and. Uh, we hope to see you around. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking with me, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. US, Fresno's best. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed Fresno's my interview today best. with Brian Harley. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.